fact, you can't say giddy up to make him go. He won't respond. You've got to say, praise the Lord. Said, and instead of saying, woe, to make him stop, you need to say, amen. And the preacher thought, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. So he paid the money, got on the horse, he mounted him, he started to head home. And he got on and said, praise the Lord. The horse started giddy up, man. It started to go. It started to move. It says a horse cantered off towards his home. And after a couple of miles, though, a jackrabbit ran out in front of him, frightened the horse. And it started to dart across the road. And the next thing you know, the horse took off on a gallop. It was going across an open field. And it was going directly toward a bluff where there was a river 200 feet below. And the preacher's panicking. Whoa, stop. God, help me. Stop. Oh, and, and, and at the last second, right as the horse is ready to go over the edge, he comes to the right to the edge, and he remembers, he goes, Amen! Ah! Horse stops. Preacher goes, Whew! Praise the Lord. <laughs> Not bad. I thought some of you were going to take a little bit longer to get that one. Very good. But you know, the, the thing I love about the story is that it's a reminder of the danger in becoming too familiar or routine in our relationship with God. You know, all too often, it's easy to go on kind of cruise control when dealing with the familiar. You know, in our ongoing study through the Gospel of Luke, we come today to a passage uh, where we are challenged to give serious consideration to what it biblically means to praise the Lord, to worship God. The Gospel of Luke is filled with joys. I mentioned a few weeks back in our introduction um, and when you think about it, the, we've seen that the, the joy that was experienced by Elizabeth and Zacharias that resulted from the angel's announcement that they were to finally have that son who, that, whom they had prayed for for years. We'll see today Mary's joy expressed in a wonderful song of praise towards God who considered her to be the mother of the long-awaited Savior. You know, in future messages, we're going to sense the joy of the angel's announcement with regards to the coming Savior, and also the joy of families who witnessed a loved one, you know, healed or brought back to life. The joy of those who found that which was lost, or the joy of those coming to believe on Jesus and experiencing God's forgiveness and the new birth. You know, it's a great study that we're going to go through as it relates to joy, the great joy of God and his compassion towards, towards mankind. And in every case, you'll find that the right response to those who received the compassion of God was that they couldn't help but to praise him. They couldn't help but to praise him for what they had just experienced in their relationship with him. And with all that said, turn with me to the, to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1 and verses 38 through 35, where we learn from Mary what it means to magnify the Lord or to truly worship God. In Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 38, we read these words. It says, And Mary said, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. Now at this time Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And, and, and how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, 
My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. And he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. You know, from this passage, I'd like to call your attention to two main points. The first is, if you'll notice, that Elizabeth's delight responded to the wonderful promise of God as you, as you follow through on your notes, that Elizabeth's delight responded to the wonderful promise of God specifically as it related to her experience with the baby. In verse 39 and 41, we read again these words where we're told, Now at this time Mary arose and went with haste. When she found out that Elizabeth was pregnant, uh, she arose and went with haste. She couldn't wait to get to see her so they could celebrate this blessing, this miracle with another person. I love this as Elizabeth is older, much older than Mary. And what a wonderful thing it is when you think about the whole idea of mentoring adults, being there with somebody else who is experiencing the same thing or has experienced something similar to be able to get guidance and direction as to, you know, how did you handle this? What did God teach you? What is it that he's trying to teach me? And on and on it goes as we pass these these truths along from one generation to the next. But Mary went in haste. She couldn't wait to get there. And she entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby who we know to be John the Baptist, the baby leaped in her womb. The word translated leaped here is used to describe skipping or leaping as you would look out and you would see sheep out in the field and they would be skipping or leaping. There was joy that was present here. And in fact, as I was going through and, and, and reading and studying this, the first passage that God brought to mind is found in Acts chapter 3, if you want to look at that with me, because it's a reminder the same word is used and it immediately came to mind as I was studying this passage what a wonderful experience it is to to have an encounter with the living God and to have him change your life. Notice in Acts chapter 3, starting with verse 1, we read these words. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, which is the hour of prayer. And a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, and there's our word, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. 
And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the temple came together at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. And then Peter then addressed them, and he preached the word of God. What a wonderful thing this is to experience. If you can see this guy who was begging every day of his life just to be able to meet his basic needs of life. And he thought that they were going to give him a hand that, but what they gave him was even greater than that. They gave him the miracle as God, using the the apostles at this time, raised him to his feet to where he said he was dancing and leaping and praising God. And you know, and what a beautiful picture that is of one whose life has been touched by the living God. One who has been healed miraculously. And I want you to notice something. Every time that God heals a person, it's instantly. Immediately he was strengthened. Immediately we're told his ankles were strengthened and, and he was able to leap up and praise God. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and they're born again from above, the Bible says that, you know, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. And new isn't taking that which is old and remaking it. New is the same word that's used for creation as to God creating the universe. And he took something that didn't exist and made it into something that we now see. When God creates in you and me a new heart or a clean heart, he gives us a brand new one. He gets rid of the old and all things become new. And man, I'll tell you what, you can't help but be excited about praising God for being born again. Because you see life from God's vantage point. The Spirit of God now lives within you. And the things that you used to do, you don't even have any desire to do that anymore. In fact, when you try to do it, you're convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the Spirit of God living within us says, you know what? God's got something better for you. You don't need to go back there. Go this way. And man, I'll tell you what, you can't help it be excited. This man was changed physically and he was excited. How much more for those of us who are dead spiritually to God and now we're alive to God and, and we, have, we, have, we have an understanding of a living God. There were years in my life where people would say, you know what, Chuck, you need religion in your life. You need to go to church. You need to read your Bible. You need to do stuff. And I'd go and I'd hate it every minute of it. It was boring. It didn't mean anything to me. I couldn't wait till it was over. I'd be looking at my watch and go, man, when's this going to be over? There's an early football game on. You know, it's like, man, you know, you got to be kidding me. And I try to read the Bible and you'd read it and go, what is this saying to who? It's like this, read, the, read your Bible, your life will change. Come on, that's not changing anything. And then all of a sudden, when you recognize that you're a sinner and you need God's forgiveness and you come to the cross and you trust that Jesus died for you, that he rose again from the dead and you trust him as your savior. The Bible says we're born again from above by God's will, not by our own will or by our own efforts. And man, everything becomes new. And you can't wait to praise God. You can't wait to tell people. And what's, what's, what's frightening to me are those who claim to be born again who have no interest in praising their savior. Man, I'll tell you what, if somebody saved your life, you couldn't wait to go around talking about them. If you were out drowning in the ocean and a lifeguard came and saved your life, man, you couldn't wait to introduce them to everybody you can introduce them to. And you couldn't wait to tell them about this guy who risked his life to save yours. How much more so should we be running around praising God for one who gave up his life so that we could have life? You know, this man didn't hold back. He didn't care what anybody thought, just like the blind man. You know what? I don't care what you people say. I was once blind. Now I can see. I'm not apologizing to anybody. Look at me, because I can look at you. 
You know, and that's him. He was, he was, others, and you know what? And, and when he was praising God, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but you'll notice when he was praising God, others were in awe of what God had done in his life. When we worship and praise God from our hearts, hearts that have been made new again, not again, new for the first time, when we've been born again, and we praise God, the world around us should be in awe of one who had nothing to do with God and now all of a sudden is in love with God. What happened? They should want to know. As I was thinking about this, when one experiences God's power in his presence in a positive sense, we can't help but praise him. You know, going back to Luke's account, the question I had as I was going through this, you know, why did Elizabeth's baby, why did John, who we know him to be, why did John react this way at this greeting? And I'm convinced two things are true. Number one, this was John's first prophecy. John the Baptist, prophet of God, the prophet who would point people to the Savior, his ministry began three months before his birth. Just think about it. The Holy Spirit, with whom he was filled before birth, prompted his inner vault. He leaped. He couldn't wait. And later, 30 years later, his prophetic joy was in announcing Christ. And he used this illustration or this, this parable or word picture. He said, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. That joy is now complete. He couldn't wait to hear Jesus. 30 years later, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He went on to say that he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. He was a great man among men. And the reason that he was great is because he was humble. The reason that God exalted him is because God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Jesus said there was no man born of women who was greater than John the Baptist. And the reason that John was so great is because he recognized there's only one God, and it wasn't him. He recognized Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. John was saying this about worship. Worship's not about me. God, it's all about you. It's all about you and not about me. The second reason that I believe that he leaped in his mother's womb was because he was overcome with the emotion of joy. He was overcome with the emotion of joy, and we'll see that on and on again, over and over again, and you'll never get tired of the experience of joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, joy. Joy. The more exact literal definition was that he leaped with delight. His delight was in the Lord. You know, what's fascinating to me, and I don't want you to miss this, is this, is that this fetus, yet to see the light of the world, experience the emotions of joyous delight. How often it takes, how sometimes often long it takes for science and technology to catch up with the truth of God's word. The word of God in Isaiah said the world was round, and for centuries they believed it to be flat. And yet the word of God said that the world is a sphere, that it's round. 
Here we see that this fetus, John the Baptist, experienced joy in his mother's womb. We know from technology today that this is incontrovertible testimony to the pre-birth personhood of John the Baptist. We know from technology that John, at this point, six months, was about nine inches long and weighed about one and a half pounds. He looked like a perfect miniature newborn. His skin was translucent. He had fingerprints and toe prints. Sometimes his eyes would open for brief periods and he would gaze into the liquid darkness of his mother's womb. If John could have spoken, I believe he would have quoted Job who said, Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese and clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? In John and Job 10. As a fetus of six months, John was an emotional being. He had the capacity to be filled with the Spirit. He was so overcome that he leapt for joy. And this is a sobering revelation for anyone who considers abortion, especially for Christians. In fact, as I was reading this and recognized how true the Word of God continues to be, I was reminded of Psalm 139 where we read this, For thou, dost, thou didst form me, and you formed my inner parts. You weaved me in my mother's womb, and I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from thee, and I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes, O God, have seen my unformed substance, and in your book, they were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as of yet, <clears throat> there was not one. You know, I couldn't help but think about the angel's announcement to both Zacharias and ultimately again to Elizabeth as he delivered that message. But I also think about the announcement that was made to Mary. You know, the angel said to Zacharias about John the Baptist, this child that they still did not have, this child who was not yet to be even conceived in, their, in, in his mother's womb, he said, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Then I want you to consider what Gabriel said to Mary about her son, our Savior. It says, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. You know, at the time of Mary's visit with Elizabeth, she was already three to four days pregnant. And I want you to think about the ramifications of that, because Jesus, as we, are, as we see from science, the God of the universe was a zygote. And when Jesus, a zygote in the womb of his mother, entered the room, John the Baptist, a six-month-old fetus in Elizabeth's womb, leapt for joy. And Elizabeth addressed Mary in the present tense as the mother of my Lord. And the reason that I share that and the reason that we praise God and worship him for what we see taking place here is that in view of all this, I pose this question. If young Mary had gotten an abortion what would she have aborted? A potential human being or the person of the eternal Son of God?
There's only one answer that's possible from Scripture. Now, I share this, hopefully, with words of compassion because I realize that some listening, no doubt, have had abortions. And perhaps it was in ignorance before knowing the Scriptures and coming to faith in Christ, and you've lived with that for many years. Or perhaps it was because of fear or economic stress or the pressures of a boyfriend or family. Whatever the reason, I tell you today that if you turn to Christ, that God's grace is big enough to bring you forgiveness. Perhaps some of you were even believers, and because you didn't sin in ignorance, your sin is even more grievous to God, but nevertheless, God's grace is still sufficient. Whatever our past, we are now all under the light of God's word, and our responsibility is to accept God's love and grace, and also our responsibility to protect unborn life is immense. And I hope that this encourages any who find themselves in such a situation. There's no sin that cannot be forgiven to those who are broken and despised before God. A broken heart, O God, you will never, ever despise. A broken heart we can come to at any moment. Oftentimes in life we live for years with the consequence, but we praise God and we worship Him because He no longer holds us accountable for the payment that needs to be paid for that sin. For Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. We need to recognize and understand that we have a responsibility to share the truth of God's word with those who in ignorance didn't know any better, but are still held accountable for their choices. That's why they need a Savior. That's why we need a Savior. And that's why when we find a Savior, we should be praising God and leaping and dancing and singing and joyfully telling others that there's forgiveness in Christ. The only sin that is not forgiven in Scripture is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ's death and his resurrection for you. There is no remedy for that. But every other sin, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful truth that is. And there's joy found in forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. A second point, if you'll notice as you go along through it, is that you'll notice that Elizabeth also, back to Luke chapter 1, there is, is her expression of blessing. You'll notice that when, when Mary shows up, Elizabeth blesses her and cries out with a loud voice and says, blessed among women are you. He said, she didn't say blessed over all women are you, but blessed among women are you. And how wonderful it is, is blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb who is Jesus. And how has it happened to me that, notice, the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. John experienced joy in his mother's womb. He goes on, and she goes on and says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Man, you believed God. You took him at his word. Man, that's a great place to be. And what a moment in history, if you think about this, what's taken place here, these two women being used by God in a historical moment in time for such a time as this. Elizabeth, it's your time to serve your Savior in this way. Mary, it's your time to serve your Savior, God, in this way. What a wonderful thing it is. And you know what Mary couldn't help doing? She broke out in song. 
That's what this is, the magnificent that we see here that's been recorded for all of us to, to look at, to treasure, to ponder, to, to relate to, to understand what it means to praise God. We're going to examine three things that were evident from Mary's praise of God and three truths that will help you and me better understand worship. But before we look at that, it's important to note that Mary had three to four days. She made haste to get to see Elizabeth. For three to four days, she traveled to see Elizabeth. And for three to four days, I believe as she journeyed, she had an opportunity to focus on what God was doing in her life. She didn't have a radio on her donkey. She didn't have a Walkman. She didn't have any other distraction. All that she had time to do was to think about God, to ponder, to treasure, to meditate, She knew scripture, and how we know she knew scripture is because we'll see 15 discernible Old Testament quotations in her song of praise to God. This girl, between the ages of 12 and 14, had a heart for God. She had a passion to know God, to know his word, to understand what it was that he was going to do in her life. She had a passion for God. I want to know you. I want to see your face. I want to touch you. I want, to, I, want, I want to know everything about you. I want you to share with me everything that you want to share with me, and I don't want to be the reason or the excuse for my ignorance. I want to know you. And for three to four days as she traveled, there's no doubt she thought about Hannah in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and how Hannah opened the barren womb of this woman, and she praised God in his word. She knew history. She knew how God worked in past times. You and I, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in those God moments where you recognize that, you know what, I'm living something today that closely parallels that to which, you know, the Apostle Paul went through or Daniel went through or, or Joseph went through. I know I'm living things that God has written for me for the, for the purpose of giving me an example of other men and women throughout human history who went through the same things that we did, and you know what, and they passed the test. Hebrews 11. I mean, you know what's exciting to know? That there's nothing new under the sun. There is nothing you're going through that I go through that hasn't been experienced by someone else in human history. And God gives us a word to help us to see how they endured, how you and I can endure. That's exciting. I was reading one time, and I was thinking about, you know, where Jesus said that, you know, you're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. He told the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 that you are going to proclaim me before kings and those who are in charge of kingdoms. You're going to tell kings about Jesus Christ, the king of kings and Lord of lords. And in Acts chapter 26, before Agrippa, he got to do that. He went to Rome. He got to do that. He fulfilled that prophecy. And, you know, and, and, and just to kind of relate in a very simple way, but there was a time where Linda and I we were on a trip, and we were on the Orient Express, and we were going through the mountains of Switzerland. And I was talking to a senior vice president of a company who had, stayed, had put this trip together for us. And we were on the train. And on this train and looking at everything that was going on, I had the great pleasure of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to a senior vice president of a major corporation and to be able to tell him the truths of God's great love for him. Man, you know what? Those times are, I mean, I was like, awesome. It's like this guy from Castle Shannon, Pennsylvania, no town, nobody, nowhere, no how, is on an Orient, the Orient Express. I was looking for Agatha Christie, couldn't find her. But I was on the Orient Express going through Switzerland telling this 
man about Jesus. It doesn't get any better than that. And you know what? In the train and the mountains and all that, we're just a bonus. Tell them about Jesus. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than that. We need to recognize and understand that Mary knew Scripture, and we see that. And you know what? That's where worship starts. It starts in knowing God personally, having trusted in Christ for our sins, the forgiveness of our sins and the power of his resurrection. It continues as we know the Word of God, and we know Scripture. And when we know what God is doing in our life and we know who he is, we can't help but praise him. And we're going to see that as we go through this. You know, Mary's a great example of a woman who grew up in a home and the Jewish family's culture understood the command of God that you're to train up your children in your home. That as you go, you're to teach them. As you have experiences, you're to use those to teach and instruct God's truth. You're to train up a child in the way that he should go so when he's old, when he's old he won't depart from it. The primary responsibility of teaching and training has always been and will always be the responsibility of parents. And the reason I share that is, is because the church comes alongside and reinforces the primary responsibility of teaching God's truth, but it's to be in the home. We don't hire people so that you're excused of your responsibility to train up your children in the way they should go. We bring people aboard so that we can supplement that, so that we can complement that, so that we can all work together toward a common goal of introducing our children to sin and a need for a Savior, Jesus, His death, His resurrection, and then to build them up so they're equipped for the work of service. But you know what? We live in this specialized culture where we're always looking at somebody else to do what we're supposed to do ourselves. We've got personal trainers, and we've got coaches, and we've got club teams, and we've got academic teams. We've got all kind of specialists out there so that you and I as parents are free of our responsibility, we think, of doing what God has called us to do. You and I are not excused of our responsibility before God because we live in a specialized culture. There is no one on the outside of your home that can introduce your son or daughter to Jesus Christ better than you because you're with them all the time. You can speak the truth and then you better live it out. But I'll tell you what, if it's not happening at the home, it's real difficult for them to see it in the lives of others. Our primary responsibility is to teach and train and to worship and to praise God in our home. Now we look at Mary's response. Mary's praise of God begins with number one, she rejoiced in her salvation. She magnified the Lord by rejoicing in her salvation. Notice that just prior to this, if you look at verse 46, Mary said, my soul exalts, magnifies, enlarges the Lord. My soul exalts or magnifies the Lord. It's in the present tense. It's, and it's an effect that results from past action. I don't want you to miss this. It's so important. Which, what she's saying is, my soul exalts, praises, enlarges the Lord because of what he has already done in my life. There was a point where Mary put her faith and trust in the word of God because she said, behold, your bond servant May it be done to me according to your word. There was surrender to the truth of the word of God. And because she surrendered to him at a past moment in life, her praise and joy continues in the present. Isn't that wonderful? 
There isn't a day that goes by when I think about 25 years ago coming to faith in Christ that I don't praise God and rejoice in Him in the present. Rejoice in your salvation today, though you received it back then. It's ongoing. He who began a good work in you then will continue it into the day of Christ Jesus. He continues it. He has begun it. He's continued it. We're saved in a moment of time, and we're conformed into the image of Christ over a lifetime. She praised God for what he had already done in his life. And she praised him for God, my Savior. My sins have been forgiven because God had promised to send a Savior into the world. And that Savior, God promised, is in my womb. Praise God. How awesome is that? I want to challenge you to consider if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, then magnify the Lord by rejoicing in your salvation. As we gather together as a family, a church family, having received God's word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We're to praise him. We're to rejoice in his grace. We're to rejoice in his love. Technically, we don't make God any bigger. He says, I magnify the Lord. I make God bigger. God is God. We can't make God bigger. We can't make God smaller. He is who he is. But when we magnify the Lord, when we enlarge the Lord, we do it in our own life and in the lives of others. As we praise God and enlarge him to people who think God is small, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago on the airplane to a guy who said, oh, how can Jesus walk on water? He's thinking of a little God. Well, ask the bigger question. Hey, how did God make water out of nothing? There's our God. Walking on it afterwards isn't a problem. You know, praise God. You know, the world has a little teeny view of God. We enlarge God. We magnify the Lord by speaking well of Him before others. And we, we make them see Him as He truly is. It's awesome. You know, but as we look at this, I, I want to share a personal concern. I'm troubled by some of the things that I've seen to date. And I want to encourage you. And this isn't like a rebuke time or, you know, get out the belt type of time. But this is a time where I want to encourage you to consider When we come together as a church family to praise and worship God, I'm troubled by the talking. I'm troubled by people getting up and walking around. I'm troubled by cell phones that go off. I'm troubled by drinking and eating that goes on while we're here to be worshiping and magnifying God. You know what? And if it's done out of ignorance, that's my fault because I'm to teach with gentleness and instruction. But if it's because you're just being rude and rebellious... Well, then, you know what? Then you deserve to be rebuked. So I don't know which is true in your life, but I want to encourage you as we move forward into the future that we recognize that this may be an Elks Club, the balance of the week, but when we're here, we're in God's house. We're in God's house, and we need to show Him the respect and the reverence that only He deserves. We're going to start on time. We're going to come in prepared to worship Him. We're going to rejoice in our salvation. We can visit with others before. We can visit with others afterwards. But when we come into God's house, let's show him the respect that he deserves. The reverence and the rejoicing in God our, in God our Savior. Mary, man, she was like fired up. She couldn't wait to rejoice in her salvation. Mary knew that she had been saved from the judgment of God by, for her sin by her Savior. And her spirit, notice what she says in verse 47, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And it's not big S, it's little s. It's not the spirit of God living within her. It's her spirit to love God with our body, soul, and spirit. 
to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to have a passion for God. I want to know you, God. I want to experience you. I want to praise you. I want to lift you up. I I, want to magnify you. I want to enlarge you in my life and the lives of those around us. Because as people come and visit here and we praise God and they sense his presence, they'll be in awe. We're told in Acts 2 that they they gained in favor in the sight of both God and man as they praised God and people were in awe. We live in a world that doesn't know God and yet to see people who worship him and know him personally and intimately. Man, I'll tell you what, that's a great testimony. That's where salt and light comes in. That's where people start to look at us and say, what is going on in your life? It's like you really know God. I do. And you can know him too. It's wonderful. I read recently about a man who wrote the following. He said, I was an observer at the launch of Apollo 17 in 1975. It was a night launch, and there were hundreds of cynical reporters all over the lawn, drinking beer, wisecracking, and waiting for this 35-story high rocket. Says the countdown came and then, and then the launch. The first thing you see is this extraordinary orange light, which is just about at the limit of what you can bear to look at. He said, everything is illuminated with this light. Then comes this thing slowly rising up in total silence because it takes a few seconds for the sound to come across. And you hear a whoosh, whoosh. It enters right into you. You can practically hear jaws dropping. That awe, that sense of wonder and awe fills everyone in the whole place as this thing goes up and up. The first stage ignites this beautiful blue flame. It becomes like a star. But you realize there are humans on it. And then there's total silence. It says people just get up quietly, helping each other up. They're kind. They open doors. They look at one another, speaking quietly and interestedly. These were suddenly moral people because the sense of wonder, the experience of wonder had made them moral. He said, those who have worshipped our wondrous God in spirit and truth know the feeling. Worship is life-changing. And my concern is so many of us miss that. It's life-changing. You know, there's this controversy that continues to divide the church and worship over more than any other issue. And if you stop and really boil it down, you ask yourself the question, is it a question over biblical commands to worship? The answer is no, we're told to worship. There's a time coming and now is where God's people will worship him in spirit and in truth with their whole beings, with their whole heart, with their whole mind, with their whole soul. They know God. We've experienced his love, his grace, his mercy, his tenderness, his forgiveness in Christ. Man, you can't help but praise him. So it's not over the command to worship. We're commanded to worship. And it's not even a disagreement over sometimes the contents of the songs because some contend that new songs are too repetitious and shallow, but some of the new choruses are straight out of Scripture. Follow the words and look at them. I mean, they come right from the Word of God. So it can't be that. And it's not that the old hymns were more extremely religious and weren't repetitious. Ask yourself the question. Look, up, look sometime in a hymn, though, at when the roll is called up yonder. I mean, when a roll is called up yonder, I'll be there, you know, and they say it like 6,000 times. It's, it's not that that's any less repetitious than new songs. So the, the, the heated argument and debate as we look at this, it's really a disagreement over that which is familiar over the unfamiliar. It's kind of like people will say, you know what, it's not like Christmas if we don't go to grandma's house. Well, it's still Christmas. Whether you go to grandma's house or not, but it doesn't feel like Christmas to you because you associate Christmas with that. And for many of you, as we get older and, are, and we get more mature, hopefully, 
we begin to recognize that, you know what, I like the hymns because there was a time in my life where that's where I met my Savior. And man, it's special to me. But I want you to understand that the debate isn't about whether we should praise God or not. That's clear. It's not about the content because it should be biblical. That's clear. What it's really all about is our own personal experiences. Let me give you an example of a few letters that pastors get regarding worship. (laughs) Number one, what's wrong with the inspiring hymns with which we grew up? When I go to church, it's to worship God, not to be distracted and learning a new hymn. Last Sunday was particularly unnerving. Well, the text was good, the tune was unsingable, and the new harmonies were quite discordant. Another one. Pastor, I'm not a music scholar, but if they just stop right there, there's some wisdom. (laughs) But I feel I know appropriate church music when I hear it. Last Sunday's new hymn, if you call it that, sounded like a sentimental love ballad one might expect to hear you know, uh, sung in a, in, a, in a bar, a saloon, or a, a nightclub. If you persist in exposing us to rubbish like this in God's house, don't be surprised if many of the faithful look for a new place to worship. Wow. You know what's so great about these letters? The first one was written in 1880. And whoever it was pulled it out of their file. No. And... Uh, <laughs> And it referred to, and it was a reference to the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. The second one was written in 1864, and it concerned the hymn, Just As I Am. What's the point? The point is, old hymns used to be new hymns. You know, and as we think about this, the controversy really is about you know, the beat of the music. You know, it just doesn't sound sacred. But you know Martin Luther, when he wrote A Mighty Fortress? He put the words to a tune that was sung in saloons. It's true. And then we have people today say, you know, we need to get back to singing songs like A Mighty Fortress is Our God. <laughs> Reminds me of my old drinking days. <laughs> You know, they don't even realize when they say that, that that's what they're saying. I just kind of smile. You mean like that saloon song you used to sing? And it was like, well, see, and that's the problem, you know. And, and I understand that because it's, it'd be like taking, you know, hymns today or choruses today and, and, and put them with, you know, 99 bottles of beer on the wall. You know, but the reality of it is, is that that's truth. That is historically true. You know, it's really a controversy about, you know, volume. You know, and the Bible says, make a joyful noise. Sing loud to the Lord. You know, well, that's just too loud. You know, it's keeping me awake. <laughs> well, then stay in bed. You know, it's like it's about loud. You know, it's loud, you know, so we get off on that. It's loud. All right. Well, or it's about the instruments. You know, there was one pastor writes, he said, I remember people being unhappy the first time a guitar was used in our worship service. It just didn't seem appropriate. Now some are disturbed to hear drums. Others hate the synthesizer, synthesizer, or can't believe that a saxophone, the sultry sound of a saxophone could ever be worshipful. But the Bible says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It's awesome. How do you tie all this together as we look at this? Well, let me give you some suggestions. They're just suggestions, subtle suggestions. Put them in that application part. Number one, acknowledge that what reaches you isn't necessarily what reaches others. 
You know, it's like tasting food. You know, some people like one thing, some people like another thing. Acknowledge that, you know what, what reaches you isn't always what's going to reach others and vice versa. Number two, don't demand the entire worship service be for you because it really is all about him. It's all about him. Maybe someone is being reached by the music you don't like. Number three, don't be divisive and spread discontent to others. You know, the Bible doesn't say much about musical styles, but it really does have a lot to say about church unity. You know, we're open as leaders. I'm always open to listen to what concerns are out there. But I really want us to take a good hard look at, are we really making things all about us and not about him? And the last thing is, you know what, participate in worship even if the musical style isn't your favorite. Think about it. If we have a guest who comes who doesn't know our Savior, and they see us all united and praising God and lifting his voice up, even though it's not the musical style that we're accustomed to or that we personally like, they'll see the joy of the Lord in our heart. They'll see the praises of God on our lips. They see scowls and frowns and discontent and running around and complaining and try to get up a posse, you know, in a lynch mob. You know, then they'll just look and say, man, you know what, we're just like the rest of the world. I love what one of the women and several said about the women's luncheon yesterday. The gal who spoke came and said, you know what, man, I sense God's love in this place. I don't see all the discontent and the, and the anger and the frustration and all that goes on, you know, that's out there in the world. Man, I sense that, you know what, there are people here that love God and they love one another and they want this to be a great experience for those who don't know God. I hope and pray that every person that comes here and visits with us walks out of here with the sense that, man, you know what, I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but I sense one thing. There's a group of people that love God and love one another. And it's amazing to me that older people will tolerate that kind of music. And it's amazing to me that younger people, people will tolerate old hymns. You know, we need to look around and see that, you know what, we're a cross-section of humanity. You know, we're, we're a taste of what God has done. And we look at heaven and we see people from all tribes, nations, and colors, and races. And we see people young and old. We see God touching people at different moments in their life. And we need to recognize and understand that what you experienced in your life way back then is the same thing that God's doing in the lives of people today. And their experiences with God and their music that goes with it and the songs of praise and all that is so personal and it me- it's so meaningful that we just need to recognize and understand that, you know what, praising God is, is like Mary was praising him as she rejoiced in the God of her salvation. She rejoiced in what he had done in her life. She also recognized her state before God. Notice this. It says that, for he has had regard of the humble state of his bond slave. Isn't that amazing? It's like the, 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 she recognized her state before God, the humble state of his bond slave. Just like Hannah, O oh Lord Almighty, if you will look upon your servant's misery, the humble state, she recognized, you know what? There was nothing in her worthy of God's great love, his compassion or his forgiveness. She knew that she was a sinner. She knew the things that you and I don't know about her, but only God knows. Just as you know that God would consider you, that God would consider me, that God would reach into the darkness of this world and extend his hand of grace and forgiveness to you and I and to bring us from darkness into light. Man, you know what? She recognized, as do all people who have come to faith in Christ, their need for forgiveness. As I mentioned, God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
this is a truth that continues all through Scripture. It's the broken, the brokenhearted, the contrite, those who are seeking forgiveness that God will not despise. Those who are self-sufficient, those who are arrogant, those who think that they don't need forgiveness, yet alone God, then you know what? God's opposed to such people. He's opposed to such heart. He's opposed to that type of attitude. She sung out and praised God because he considered her, not that she was worthy, but that she was considered by him. God considers you and he considers me. And if that doesn't make you want to praise God, man, then you know what? We better examine ourselves, as scripture says, to see if we're really in the truth. Jesus Christ came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. His startling words in the Sermon on the Mount began with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You can't come to God demanding anything. We come to God and we throw ourselves upon his mercy because we are in need of his forgiveness, his grace and his love and his compassion. See, Mary magnified the Lord by rejoicing in her salvation and by recognizing her state before God. Notice what she says. She says, for behold, man, take a good look. From this time on, all generations will count me blessed. You know what? And that's the truth of all of us who have come to faith in Christ. Every one of us, the world looks at and says, we are blessed. The word of God says that we are blessed. What a wonderful truth that is. Jesus said, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Revelation 26, 20 verse 6 says, blessed and holy are those who are part in the first resurrection. You and I are blessed by God, those who have come to faith in Christ. Just as it is fitting for you and I to praise God as Mary did, we need to recognize that all of us are to magnify the Lord, to magnify Him. I like what I read not too long about, about humility. Aurelius Augustinus, who is better known as St. Augustine, considered by many to be the greatest theologian of the church, understood what it was to be humble when he said this, for those who would learn God's way, humility is the first thing, Humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. There's nothing more important than a broken and contrite heart before God. So as we look at this in closing, Mary also magnifies God by remembering who God is and what he can do. Man, this is a message in and of itself, but we'll look at it just as we go through it. It says, for the mighty one, the power of God, the mighty one of God has done great things for me. She experienced the power of God. You and I, who have come to faith in Christ, have experienced the power of God, for God has raised you up from the dead spiritually and made you alive to God. There is nothing more powerful than that. It's resurrection power. It's the power that God demonstrated by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, the same power that he demonstrates when he raises you and I, who are dead to God and alive to sin, and he raises us up to be alive to God. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name, as the angels shout before the throne of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. God is saying that you and I who cry out to God will experience the mercy of God. 
says he has done mighty deeds with his arm and he has scattered those who are proud on the thoughts of their heart. Can you imagine? She's looking at all of history going, man, you know what? I can think of all the humble people that God elevated, the Daniels of the world, the Shadrachs, Meshachs, Abednegoes, the Josephs of the world, the Hannahs of the world. Everyone who was humble before God, we see God exalting them. Everyone who was proud and arrogant before God, we see God putting them down. Not only is it past tense, but it's present tense. No one will stand before God. We think of Nebuchadnezzar who said, look at my mighty hand have done what a wonderful kingdom that i have am i not the greatest in the world and then god struck him down and he was out in the backyard of his kingdom mowing the grass with his teeth for seven years you know mary was thinking about that we need to think about that we need to meditate ponder and treasure in our hearts the word of god and the truth of god when we start feeling a little bit uppity we need to go back to scripture and look at every time somebody thought themselves to be higher than they should have god struck them down We need to recognize that. When he came to at the end of seven years, the first thing he said, hey, blessed be the God of the heavens. There's nobody greater than God. There's only one God. You're God. I'm not. I'm just, you know, just thankful to be here. Thanks for letting me have part of this. Thanks for this kingdom. Thanks for everything you gave me. But it's not mine. It's all yours. You take it anytime you want. The man learned his lesson. You and I need to learn our lesson. Mary learned her lesson. She was humble before God. He scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He brought down rulers from their thrones. He exalted those who were humble. Think of Daniel being exalted in all the kingdoms of the world. The Medes and the Persians took over. Daniel was exalted. He was a carryover from the Babylonian days. He was exalted when the leaders were taken out. He was like the White House gardener. He was always there. You know, here comes one administration. There's another one. But the White House gardener is always there. You know, that's the way it works. He sent away the rich, empty-handed. He's given help to Israel, a servant in remembrance of mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Man, she was praising God. She was praising God. Man, there's so much to learn in so little time. She was praising God. She rejoiced in her salvation. She never took it for granted. She never, it never got old. It never got tiring. She never tired of meditating on the word and then bragging about him to others. For this we must always magnify the Lord. She rejoiced in her state before God. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For this we must magnify God. And lastly, Mary magnified the Lord as she remembered who God is and what he can do. We come to praise on God and focus on his power, his holiness, his mercy as she experienced Christ within. These are ours also as Christ is born within us. My hope and my prayer is that you and I have learned a little bit more about how to magnify the Lord from the life of this humble servant that God considered to bear the Savior of the world. It's awesome. Magnify the Lord. God is seeking hearts like Mary's, children who magnify Him, who enlarge him in their souls and on their lips and with the passion of their entire beings. I pray that from this day forward, that our time together as we worship God will never be like anything that it's been in the past, but it will be all about him and not about us. Mary said, My soul makes great the Lord. My soul exalts in God my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this time to be together. May our lives and our lips magnify you to others. Enlarge your presence in a world who thinks you're such a small, tiny God, if a God at all. God, you are the God of the universe. 
For unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God, we thank you. We praise you. We remember you here today. Amen.